You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Uh, when I last preached, Jim asked me if from here on out, if I would start in a book. And every time I have an opportunity to preach, just work my way through a book. So that's what I will be doing this morning, beginning with the book of James. This morning will just be an overview. There won't be a great deal of exposition per se this morning. I'm going to give you an overview of the book of James, and by God's grace, draw some practical application from that. So, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open your copy of God's Word. Actually, not to the book of James, not yet, to the book of Matthew. Where else would we start a series, book of James? Matthew chapter 12. We'll begin there, and then we'll get to James. But this by way of background information. But let's, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, we come before you, and we just would ask that you quiet our hearts before you. May we see something of, of your majesty, of your glory. We pray that your Holy Spirit would sanctify us in the truth of your word. And we pray this, that, that this would be done for the glory of our King, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of James, authorship, James was the author of James, but there are many James in the New Testament. There are four James, actually, that we read of, uh, two of whom are not even remotely possibilities for the authorship of this book. The first two, son of Alphaeus, James, the son of Alphaeus, and then we have a James who is the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot. There are a lot of Judases in this day and age, Judas was a very common name, not so much anymore now for obvious reasons. But neither one of those men are seriously considered as the author of this book. There are other two other James, however, that would be possibilities for the authorship of the book of James. One is James, the son of Zebedee, excuse me, Zebedee, James, son of Zebedee, brother of John. You might recall in Matthew chapter four, Jesus called James and John while they were mending their nets. This is the same James who was in kind of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Same James that we see in Matthew chapter 17 when Jesus was transfigured. Uh, but this man, this James, could not have been the author of the book of James because we know from Acts chapter 12 that this James was killed. He was martyred for his faith by King Herod. King Herod killed him with the sword and killed him before the book of James was actually written. And so the only other James that would be the possible author would be James, the, um, excuse me, James, lost my train of thought, half-brother of Jesus, James, half-brother of Jesus. We call him, of course, a half-brother of Jesus because Jesus was born of a virgin. And so all of Jesus' siblings, and he did have siblings, they were half-siblings. So James was the half-brother of Jesus. This was the author of the book of James. Now, say a little bit about the home life. Have you ever, have you ever considered the dynamic of the home life that Jesus had and his brothers had? We know that he had brothers. He had at least four brothers. Have you ever considered that dynamic? Now, it's common for siblings to have a little bit of jealousy between one another particularly younger siblings jealous towards their older sibling. Well, my older brother is more athletic than I am. My older brother is more popular than I am. My older brother is faster. He's better at sports than I am. Can you imagine being James? My older brother is the son of God. My older brother is the Alpha and Omega. My older brother spoke 
the universe into existence. And you could never blame something that was undone in the home on your older brother. If the trash wasn't taken out, it wasn't Jesus' fault. Nothing was ever Jesus' fault. Undoubtedly, can you imagine? Now, his siblings did not know this. His siblings, as we'll see in just a minute, did not believe in Jesus. But can you imagine? Nothing could ever have been blamed on Jesus. It was never his fault. Can you imagine being around sinless perfection? 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days out of the year. Can you imagine what that was like? The Bible doesn't really tell us what that was like. The Bible doesn't give us any details of those dynamics. But I can only imagine how intimidating that must have been. Now, we must keep in mind, though, that sinless perfection demands perfect love. And so we can safely say that even though his siblings may have felt some jealousy, sense of inferiority towards Christ because he was never to blame, Jesus never fostered that. Sinless perfection demands perfect love. Well, let's look a little bit more at the family dynamic here in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 is a pivotal chapter in the life and ministry of Jesus because in Matthew chapter 12 we see the religious leaders who had turned on Jesus and they rejected Jesus, finally rejected Him. And I don't mean that that was overdue. I mean they finally rejected Him in that they sealed their own fate. They attributed the works that Jesus was doing to the power of Satan. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And when they did this, they sealed their own fate. And sadly, many of the people followed the lead of their religious leaders. They followed suit. They followed their pattern. They believed them rather than believing Christ. And people have that tendency to do the same thing today, do they not? So many times people are very apt and prone to follow the lead of their favorite preacher or favorite religious leader or whatever, favorite author. They follow their leads without doing the work that the Bereans did, without searching the Scriptures to see if these things were so. They just blindly follow their religious leaders and in so doing, they ensure their own destruction. We follow, we blindly follow religious, religious leaders. Sadly, a lot of times people will blindly follow a particular denomination. Well, this must be right because our church has always done it this way. This must be the truth because our denomination teaches this. Search the scriptures to see if these things are really so. They were not Bereans. Matthew chapter 12. Let's begin looking at verse 46. Matthew 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. His mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. These were not Jesus' cousins per the charge of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church says that these were not Jesus' siblings, not his uh, siblings, not the children of Mary and Joseph. These were his cousins. And they do this because they want to perpetuate their doctrine that Mary was a perpetual virgin. virgin. Of course, Jesus was born of a virgin. But after that, Jesus' mother, Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph had marital relations and they had other children. The Roman Catholic Church rejects that. They hold that Mary remained a virgin perpetually. And so they say, no, these were not his brothers. These were just his cousins. But Matthew chapter 13, verse 54, names Jesus' other brothers. It names James, Joseph, Joseph Jr. apparently, because the father's name was also Joseph, of course. So you have James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. He had at least four brothers. And also, James, I mean, Matthew 13, 54 mentions Jesus' sisters, plural. So Jesus had at least two sisters, half-brothers, half-sisters. Jesus was one of at least seven children. The Roman Catholic Church says that these were his cousins. But all four gospel writers affirm that Jesus had brothers and sisters. All four gospel writers mention this. And the Greek word for brothers is, or brother is the word adelphos. In the, in the plural, it would be 
adelphoi. That is the word for brother, brothers in the plural. There is a word that the Greek could have used for cousin. The Greek word for cousin is anepsios. And if these were Jesus' cousins, then that is the word that would have been used. But anepsios is not used. Adelphos, adelphoi is used. These were not Jesus' cousins. These were his siblings. And no amount of hermeneutical gymnastics can get around that. The Roman Catholic Church is wrong. Now, why do they do this? They do this. They, they, they forward this doctrine of perpetual virginity of Mary because they believe that Mary was herself born of a virgin. Did you know that? A little fun fact for you. You might have heard of the term immaculate conception. A lot of people think the immaculate conception refers to the conception of Jesus. It does not. According to Roman Catholic doctrine, it refers to the conception, not of Christ, but of Mary. And they hold that Mary was sinless. And therefore, she was a co-redemptrix. Never mind that 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says that there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, not Mary. But the Roman Catholic Church elevates Mary to a status that she'd never had. And they say that she was co-redemptrix, is co-redemptrix right along with Christ. But that is blasphemy. That is blasphemy. Look at chapter 12, verse 47. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Again, your mothers, your mother and your brothers. The Holy Spirit in his infinite wisdom knew what the Roman Catholic Church one day would do to Mary. And to preempt that, he made sure that all four gospel writers made sure that they included that Jesus had siblings. Your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But not even Mary herself made the claim that she was sinless. Remember in what we have come to call her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 verse 47, Mary says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my who? Savior. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. If Mary had been sinless, she would not have been in need of a Savior. And yet she herself recognized that she was a sinner. Your brothers and your mother are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Look at verse 48. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him this, and he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Now, at first, that might seem like a bit of a slight against Mary and his siblings, but this is not a slight at all. Jesus was affirming here that the most important relationships that we have, dear friends, are not blood relationships. The most important relationships that we have are spiritual relationships, one with another. I will be Kathy's husband for as many days as God allows me to live on this earth. She will be my wife for as many days as God allows her to live on this earth. But my most important relationship to my wife is not as her husband. It is on this earth in, a, in, a, in an earthly sense, in a human sense. But I will only be her husband for however much longer I have left on this earth. I will be her brother in Christ for all of eternity. She will be my sister in Christ for all of eternity. I will not be her husband. She will not be my wife in eternity. But I will be her brother. And she will be my sister in Christ. The most important relationships are not blood. They are spiritual. We are children of God by adoption. When God adopts us through the regenerating work of His Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, we become His children. And there are no grandchildren, dear friends. In the kingdom of God. You might have heard that said before. God does not have any grandchildren. Indeed, He does not. He only has children. We are adopted by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And when we become believers, we become members of the family of God. And that is a precious thing. That is a precious thing. Do you know that if you are here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, your closest family to you may not be your blood relatives. Certainly if they are not believers. If your family members are not believers, the most important 
relationship you have, the closest family that you have, maybe someone in Singapore or Uganda or India. A couple of months ago, I was in Fiji and we met, long story short, we met this young lady, this young girl named Kajal. That's her name, Fiji, Kajal. Kajal was not born a Christian. I mean, she was nobody's born a Christian. She was not raised in a Christian home. Her parents died. Uh, she began to date a man, a uh, wicked man, and uh, neither one of, uh, neither the man nor her were believers, but they dated. She became pregnant. And upon her pregnancy, this man left her, abandoned her. And so it was just Kajal and her 14-year-old younger sister, and now a baby on the way. But in her pregnancy, someone shared the gospel with her. And she was converted. And she started going to a good, doctrinally sound church and growing, reading and studying God's Word on her own, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. A new believer. Her parents are dead. It is just her, her 14-year-old younger sister, and now a one-year-old baby living in a dilapidated house with one spigot of running water and electricity that only works a couple hours in the day. And it's hot in Fiji. No air conditioning. Desperately, desperately poor. Well, we heard about her. We met her. And we took her. And we went, took her shopping. And we bought diapers. We bought baby food. We bought uh, everything that we could possibly get for her. We bought her a rice cooker. We bought her all these things. And she was overwhelmed by it. We came back to her little dilapidated ramshackle house. And she was just in tears. And she said, you don't even know me. And Rodney, the man that I was with on this trip, he said, we're your brothers. You are our sister. The most important relationships we have are with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if our family members, blood relatives, are not in Christ, we have family all over the world. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing to experience. Flip over, if you will, to John. Gospel of John, chapter 7. John, chapter 7. Recall as I began talking about the interesting dynamic that must have been there between Jesus and his siblings. But his siblings did not believe in Jesus. Of course, they believed that he was their brother, but they did not believe that he was the Son of God. Look at John, chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, his Adelphoi, his brothers, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may say your, see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. This was not a statement of affirmation from his brothers. This was sarcasm. They were being sarcastic to him. They were chiding him. Oh, you think you can do these works? You think you're all that? You claim to be the Son of God? Well, take your show on the road and show other people. They did not believe in him. They did not believe that he was the Son of God. They did not believe his works. Incidentally, this also dispels the apocryphal counts, the Roman Catholic teaching that Jesus performed miracles when he was a child. Remember, you might have heard the story that Jesus formed a clay bird. It's out of the dirt, made it into a bird, and then spoke life into it and became an actual bird. That's something that the Catholics believe. Uh, this account dispels this, because it's not like his brother said, oh yeah, Jesus, he's walking on the water, he's turned the water into wine. Yeah, he's been doing this kind of stuff since he was a kid. No, this dispels any of that. This, his brothers did not believe in him. Did not believe in him. Application for this towards us, family. Dear friends, sometimes family members can be the hardest ones to speak the truth to. Can they not? Sometimes it is far easier to speak truth to a friend or to someone who we do not know. Far easier to witness to someone like that than it is to witness to members of our own family. Sometimes families, family members can be the hardest ones to speak the truth to. And oftentimes, because of the very dynamic of being in a family, because of that dynamic, that family dynamic, members of our own family will not hear us. 
Sometimes they just won't hear us. Jesus' brothers, they didn't hear Him. They didn't believe Him. And sometimes members of our own family just aren't going to hear us. They might listen to say, to someone else saying the same thing, but they just will not listen to us. Jesus Himself said, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and among his own household. And also, familiarity oftentimes breeds contempt, does it not? Sometimes if we're around something all the time, familiarity has a way of breeding contempt. And I see this all the time. I see this especially where I'm from in Mississippi. Grew up in Mississippi in the, in the buckle of the Bible belt. And everybody in church, everybody in Mississippi goes to church. Or a lot, most people do. If you want to be anybody in your hometown, you need to go to church somewhere. Preferably a Baptist church, Methodist will do, but you need to go to church somewhere. And people, people are around this. And they're, they're around gospel lingo. All the time. Not saying they're around good preaching, but they're around the lingo. They're around the lingo. Ask Jesus into your heart. Ask Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior. They're around that lingo all the time. And sometimes that familiarity breeds contempt. I've heard it said by uh, Pastor Brian Hughes in Bozeman, Montana, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Be very careful that just because you're in church week after week after week and you're hearing good preaching, do not take that for granted. Make sure that that doctrine has penetrated your heart, has softened your heart. Sometimes being around something all the time can make us become callous. Guard yourself. Don't ever let yourself become callous to the gospel. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Jesus' brothers did not believe in him, but they came to believe in him. Let's look at this. James' conversion. The conversion of James. Jesus' oldest, uh, next oldest brother. Acts chapter 1, 13. Acts chapter 1, verse 13 mentions the apostles being in the upper room. Of course, this is after the resurrection in the upper room. Mentions that the apostles were in there. And verse 14 says this. Verse 14 says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So Jesus' four brothers were in the upper room. They were there. What does this tell us? That tells us that at some point along the way, Jesus' brothers had come to saving faith in Christ. They did not believe Him when they were growing up with Him, but now they do believe Him. What changed? What changed? The resurrection changed. The resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. You don't have, you can turn to there if you want. You don't have to, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus appeared to 500 brethren at once. And then he said he appeared to James also. Now that's kind of, that's, that's tender when you think about it. Jesus, post resurrection, he was bodily raised from the dead. Paul said that he appeared to 500 brethren at once. And then to James also. Jesus made a special appearance to his brother, to James. And it was this post-resurrection appearance when James saw his own brother bodily risen from the dead. I believe at that point when he appeared to James, that is when James was converted. Remember, Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. And none of them were there at the crucifixion. None of them. Only his mother was there. But after the resurrection, Jesus made a special appearance to James. He was converted. The rest of his brothers were converted. And the Bible doesn't say this specifically, but we assume probably his sisters as well. It's educated, yes. He appeared to James also. Dear friends, just as James was converted in a moment of time, there was an appointment that Jesus had with James, that he met, 1 Corinthians recorded, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Conversion is an appointment for all of us. It's an appointment. It happens in, in, a, in, a, in an instant in time. Galatians chapter 1, verse 16. I love what Paul says here. 
Galatians 1 verse 16. Paul says, But when God had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, when was Paul set apart from his mother's womb? From before his mother's womb. When He had called me from my mother's womb, set me apart through His grace, was pleased to reveal Christ in me. There came a point in time in which it pleased Christ. It pleased God to reveal Christ in and to the Apostle Paul. When did that time come? The Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9. That's when Paul was converted. That moment is when it pleased God to reveal Christ to Paul and in Paul. Salvation is an appointment. It's a moment in time. And there is nothing that Paul could have done to have sped up his conversion any sooner. There is nothing that James could have done to have sped up his conversion any sooner. It happens in a moment of time. It happens when it pleases God for it to happen. Now, that having been said, does that mean we just sit back and just kind of twiddle our thumbs and wait for God to do something? No. We are to urge men to repent. We are called to plead with all men to repent and place their faith in Christ. We do not know when that time comes. We do not know when that appointment is. And so we plead with men and we urge them to repent. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility and accountability of man. Scripture teaches both. We are to plead with men to repent. We are to urge them to repent. And they have a responsibility to repent. And yet, genuine repentance is granted by God. God grants it. It comes in a moment of time. Just as it did for Paul. Just as it did for James. And James, after his conversion, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Peter and John were with him as well, but Peter and John oftentimes were away preaching. And so James, you could kind of say, was the the senior pastor if you will, of the church in Jerusalem. This is the same. This is the brother of Jesus. This is the man who did not believe his own brother. And yet now he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He presided over the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. You might remember this, the Jerusalem council, Acts chapter 15. There was a dispute. Is salvation by grace alone or must we also keep the law? Must, must we also urge men to keep the law? Must we also urge men to be circumcised? So there was this dispute and they had a council, Jerusalem council. And this Jerusalem council led by James came down with the momentous, monumental decision and affirmation that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not of works. Salvation is solely by grace. This happened at the Jerusalem council led by James. And yet, this wonderful doctrine, this doctrine that is at the heart of the gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the very thing that the Roman Catholic Church has denounced as anathema. In the Council of Trent in the year 1563, the Roman Catholic Church pronounced an anathema. It said, if you believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are anathema. You will go to hell. And that remains official Roman Catholic doctrine to this very day. It has never been rescinded. In fact, it has been affirmed multiple times. Roman Catholicism, dear friends, is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church says that is anathema. And yet, that is the gospel. That is the gospel. But it came down decided finally at the Council of Jerusalem, recorded in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 18. Paul says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, and the brethren received us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us. Us, of course, Luke is writing the book of Acts, so that's the us. Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So here we see plurality of elders. Here we see a church in the city of Jerusalem and it is being led by a plurality of elders. Peter, John, and also James. But James was the leader. 
He was a first among equals, if you will. And this is, this is how churches need to be organized. This is how this church is organized. You have a plurality of elders, but it is perfectly fine to have kind of a, a first among equals, as Jim is. He, he has no more authority in this church than do any of the other three elders, but he is the, the senior pastor, if you will. He is the one who's kind of the first among equals. He's the one who is the primary preacher and teacher of God's word. But first among equals, we see this plurality of elders even here, Acts chapter 21, church in Jerusalem. This is, what, this is one of the things that you need to look for in a healthy church. All right, overview of the book of James. Let's turn to James now. Let's turn to the book of James. James was the first New Testament book to be written. It was written about the year A.D. 45. Could have been a year or two on either side of that, but about the year A.D. 45. It was the first New Testament book to be written. It was written only 13, 14 or so years after, uh, after the resurrection. And it had to have been written before the Jerusalem Council because there is no mention of the Jerusalem Council in the book of James. So it had to be written before that. That council was held in the year A.D. 49. So we're looking at somewhere around A.D. 44, 45, 46 for the writing, the dating of the book of James. Uh, remember that the books in your New Testament are not necessarily in chronological order. This was written to Jewish believers. Let's look at verse 2, chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 2. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James is writing to brethren. Consider it all joy, my brethren. He is writing to believers. Who are these believers? Well, we see it in the first verse to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad, James says, greetings. To the 12 tribes. Who are the 12 tribes? This 12 tribes is a way of referring to Israel. Israel, you might remember, was composed of 12 tribes, 10 northern tribes that was referred to Israel, the two southern tribes referred to as Judah, but collectively 12 tribes referring to basically Israel, and these 12 tribes were dispersed. After Foreign conquerors came in, they would conquer the Jews, and they would take some of the G these Jews and deport them out in far-flung places here and there. And so here you have what's called the, the diaspora, the diaspora. These are Jews that have been scattered abroad, Jews in all kinds of different locations, and James is writing to all of these Jews, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now one day... One day, God will miraculously and providentially bring all of these tribes back. Ezekiel chapter 37 prophesies this. We'll bring all of these tribes back. And I believe that that process began in 1948 when Israel was constituted as a nation. It began, it continues today. And one day, Ezekiel 37 will be fulfilled finally. So he's writing to Jewish believers. And it's very important that we understand that James is writing to Jewish believers. James is a very, has a very heavy Old Testament flavor, has a very heavy Jewish flavor. Uh, James directly quotes the Old Testament four times, but he alludes to it 40 times. So there's a lot of Old Testament terminology, a lot of Old Testament imagery throughout the book of James. It directly mentions Old Testament individuals. It mentions Elijah. It mentions Abraham. It mentions Rahab. Uh, James also mentions Job. There are some people out there who would say, well, Job wasn't a real historical character. It was just kind of a fairy tale, just a, a story that was told. Well, James, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the triune Godhead, did believe that Job was a real person because he mentions him in his book. But a very heavily... Uh, Old Testament Jewish flavored book, writing to Jewish Christians, the diaspora, those who have been dispersed abroad in all different kinds of places. James is a very practical book. A very practical book. James has been described this way. It's Christianity in blue jeans. Very practical book. It's not an overtly doctrinal book. It's not like Romans. It's not like uh, the, some of the pastoral epistles. It's not like 
First and Second Corinthians or Thessalonians, it doesn't go into a great deal of doctrine per se. And some have some have taken that to say, well, James is not a doctrinal book. But dear friends, here's the here's the catch to that. There is nothing more practical than doctrine. We should never separate doctrine and practice. They're two sides of the same coin. Doctrine without application is a very dangerous thing. A profoundly dangerous thing. To quote John MacArthur, John MacArthur said that hell will be full of theologians. There will be a lot of theologians in hell. There will be a lot of people with a lot of head knowledge in hell. And do you know what that head knowledge is going to do? It will only increase their condemnation. It will only increase it. And James is writing to his readers to say, make sure you are in the faith. Yes, doctrine is important. Yes, head knowledge is important. But if that head knowledge has not penetrated your heart, then it only increases condemnation. James is a very practical book. It takes great doctrinal truths and it applies them. It's Christianity in blue jeans. There are 108 verses in the book of James. And in those 108 verses, you will find 54 commands, imperatives. So really, you could say that roughly half of the book of James is a command. Do this. Do this. This is what Christianity looks like in your everyday life. Do this. Do not merely be hearers of the word. Be doers of the word. And if you are not a doer of the word, then you do not belong to Christ. You do not belong to Christ. How much do you love Jesus? It's kind of a difficult question to answer, isn't it? And why it is difficult to answer, for one thing, is that oftentimes when we think of love, we think of feelings, right? Well, I love this person because I have warm feelings towards that person. I have warm affections for that person. When I'm not uh, with that person, I think of that person. I miss that person. I like being around that person. I, I have warm feelings. That's not illegitimate. It's not illegitimate. But that is not how the Bible defines love. That's not how the Bible defines love. John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who has my commandments, not just has them, not just knows them, but has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. We cannot base our love for Christ upon our feelings and our emotions because feelings and emotions are up and down. That is not how we measure our love for Christ. The only objective measure that we have for our love for Christ is our obedience to Christ. And if you do not obey the commands of Christ, then you do not love Him. And I have seen people who will profess from the rooftops how much they love Jesus Oh, I love Jesus. But they do not obey Him. Dear friends, if you do not obey Christ, then it does not matter how much you profess your love for Him. You don't. If I just had a head full of knowledge but did not flesh out the commands of Christ, it doesn't matter how much I profess to love Him. My actions prove otherwise. He who has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves me. Has your head knowledge penetrated your heart? Has the gospel changed you? If I were to ask you this question, what is the opposite of belief? What's the opposite of belief? Maybe the most natural response would be unbelief, right? Opposite of belief is unbelief. But once again, that is not how the Bible defines unbelief. John chapter 3, verse 36. John chapter 3, verse 36. Jesus says this, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Belief. Faith. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not believe the Son will not see life. Is that what Jesus said? 
He who does not obey the Son will not see life. Notice, Jesus did not say, he who does not believe in the Son will not see life. He said, he who does not obey. He who believes in the Son has life. But he who does not obey the Son does not have life. And the wrath of God abides on him. The Bible does not define unbelief as a lack of intellectual assent. The Bible defines unbelief as disobedience. You love Christ? How can you know if you love Him? Do you obey Him? You obey Him even when it's hard. Even when your family gives you opposition. Even when your co-workers give you opposition. Even, even when, is, is the Bible great just on Sunday morning? Is, is the Bible great until it becomes inconvenient? Until it challenges us? He who has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me. James' purpose in writing his letter was to spur his readers on to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. That's what Paul said to do, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Paul says, test yourself. See if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. That's just to put an exclamation point on it. He repeats it. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Do you bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Do you have a love for the Lord? Do you have a love for His Word? Do you have a love for the brethren? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? And do you obey Christ? Do you obey Him? That is the test of saving faith. Dear friends, saving faith is changing faith. Saving faith will change you. If you have not been changed by the Gospel, then do not be deceived. Neither have you been saved by the gospel. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 gives a very sobering warning. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If your life is marked by habitual, unrepentant sin, then you have no reason to assume that you're in Christ. Paul says, do not be deceived. And he gives this long list of sins. And Paul says, such were some of you. Past tense. Not such are some of you. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. The gospel changes us. The gospel that saves us changes us. And then I love what Paul says. He says, but. He said, yeah, you were all these things. You were a fornicator. You were an idolater. You are an adulterer. Some of you are homosexuals. Thieves, covetous, drunkards. Drunkards. Revilers. Such were some of you. He says, but, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. You were sanctified. Sanctification, dear friends, setting apart for service to God, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, growing in personal holiness. Sanctification begins at the moment of conversion. It began for Paul when he was saved on the Damascus Road. It began for James when, when Jesus appeared to him, made that special post-resurrection appearance. That's when his conversion was and that's when his sanctification began. The Bible oftentimes uses sanctification interchangeably with salvation interchangeably the truth of that for us dear friends is this is that when God saves someone he changes that person he changes that person no exceptions oh well I was saved when I was eight years old I raised my hand in vacation Bible school no I haven't been living for the Lord no I'm in habitual unrepentant sin 
I'm 37 years old now. But I know I was saved because I prayed that prayer when I was a kid. I know I'm saved because I prayed that prayer when I was a teenager. No, I've got no godly affections. I have no godly sorrow over sin. I'm not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I was saved because I prayed that prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. That is foreign to the Word of God. Foreign to the Word of God. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. Those whom God saves. He changes. Has there been a change in your life? And this is what the book of James is about. Christianity in blue jeans. It is fleshing out sound doctrine. We're going to see what a Christian looks like. Faith is very practical. Doctrine is very practical. We're going to see how doctrine in the book of James, how doctrine relates to trials in life. And that will be our next verse from the next time I preach. January 1st. We'll talk about that. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We'll talk about that. How does faith relate to trials? How does faith relate to temptation? How does faith relate to, to partiality? How does faith relate to our tongues? How does faith relate to, to riches? How does faith relate to everyday life in the body of Christ? This is what the book of James is about. And a Christian will look like this. James chapter 1, verse 1. James says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word bondservant in the Greek is the word doulos. Notice how James opens his letter. Notice his humility. James didn't say, I, James, half-brother of the risen Lord Jesus. I'm his brother. No, he didn't identify himself as his brother because his most important relationship to Jesus Christ was not as his earthly brother. It was as his doulos. It was as his slave. I am James. He could have boasted about his lineage. I grew up with Jesus. I, I, I slept under the same roof with him. He's my brother. No, I'm his doulos. I'm his slave. A doulos. There's different kinds of slaves in the in the in the antiquity. Different kinds of slaves. A doulos is a slave who was born a slave. James says, I'm a doulos. Was James Jesus' slave when James was physically born? No, he wasn't. He was a sheep. He was a sheep who had not yet responded to the call of the shepherd. But he had been a sheep from eternity past. He responded to the call of the shepherd in 1 Corinthians 15 when Jesus appeared to him. But he was... A doulos, he was born a slave when at his new birth, when he was born again, he became the doulos of Christ. If you have been born again, dear friends, you are the doulos of Christ. You are his slave. I am a slave. He is our master. And a slave obeys his master. He loves him. He obeys him. I, James, the doulos, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Greetings. This word in the Greek, greetings, is the word chirine. Greetings. It means, basically it means, it's not just hello. It means rejoice. Rejoice. If you are a doulos of Christ, dear ones, rejoice. Rejoice that your sins have been forgiven. And rejoice that no matter what comes to you on this earth, and trials will come. We'll see that in our next segment on this, on this, in this book, January 1st. We'll see that trials will come. But when trials come, rejoice. Rejoice. Your sins have been forgiven. You're the doulos of Christ. He can do with you what He wants to do with you. Rejoice if your life has been changed. And I close with this. Has your life been changed? probably almost all of us in here, we have a healthy amount of head knowledge. Has that head knowledge penetrated your heart? Has the gospel changed you? If you're not certain that it has, I urge you, confess your sins before God. Throw yourself at His mercy. 
Ask Him to grant you repentance. And the one who comes to Him, Jesus says, the one who comes to Me, I will in no wise cast out. If you come in godly sorrow over your sin, and you throw yourself at Christ, and you ask Him to forgive you, He will. I will in no wise cast you aside. If you come to Him in genuine godly sorrow, genuinely seeking His forgiveness, genuinely wanting repentance, He will grant it. He will grant it. You will be born again. You will be born with the doulos of Christ. Close in a word of prayer. Father, may we not just be hearers of the word. May we be doers. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he has satisfied your wrath on the cross. And Lord, I pray that as I have opportunity to preach here and we walk our way through this book, I pray that your Holy Spirit would implant these truths on our hearts. And I pray that we would not just be hearers only, that we would not deceive ourselves, that a Christian, a doulos of Christ, is someone who looks different from the world. We are to be different. May the gospel change us for the glory of our King. In His name we pray. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.